This morning we have uh, two readings as part of our background uh, reading for, for our um, ongoing series on Galatians. And the first reading comes from Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, the verses 19 through 30. This describes part of, part of how the, the gospel spread early days of the early church. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now we turn to Acts chapter 15, which describes another journey made to Jerusalem by, by Paul or Saul. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, um, actually, we'll stop there. Let's um, read our text now from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Galatians chapter 2, the verses 1 through 10 is our text for this morning. We're going to read it together. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, back when I was in my early 20s and still living in Canada, I was involved in a pro-life event. This event involved standing on the side of a major road together with many other church members holding up signs in support of the right to life of the unborn. Some people honked and waved. Others made rude gestures. And beside me was a Roman Catholic man and a woman. She was younger than him, probably his daughter. And they were praying the rosary. One Our Father, ten Hail Marys, one Glory Be, over and over for a whole hour. And at the end of our hour of standing there, the woman turns to me and she says, um, are you not the praying kind? And I said, well, I, I do pray, but I, I did it silently in my head. 
And she says, well, that's okay. We all pray to the same God anyway. What would you have said to that? What would you have said in response? I thought about it too long, so in the end I said nothing at all. But it's still interesting to think about. It makes us reflect on the nature of the gospel. How much do the details matter? Is it enough to have the big picture, to have a general kind of an idea that we're all on the same page anyway? Or are the details important? Let's make the question even more pointed. How much do you, sitting here this morning, love the gospel? Do you care about getting it right? Our text this morning is about getting the gospel right. Did you sense the urgency in the text that we read from Galatians? Or did it feel like it was full of a lot of heat, but maybe not that much light? Well, the Apostle Paul did want to get the gospel right. He wanted to defend it against errors. And the passage that he wrote challenges us to get it right as well. After all, what would it benefit us to know that Paul got it right if we ultimately don't make the gospel our own? Then what's the point? But sometimes that can be hard to do, especially when you're younger. Sometimes you can be a youth, let's say in your mid to late teens or maybe even early 20s, and you feel disconnected from your church and your community. Maybe that's you sitting here this morning. Maybe you came here this morning because not coming would have caused you more trouble than it was worth. But you can't wait for the service to be over, and as soon as it is, you will head for the door, and you don't want to blend with the people around you. You feel out of place. So then this text just seems like someone you don't know getting worked up over an issue that you don't really care about. And maybe that's a brutally cynical assessment. But the point is an important one. What we're looking at this morning is not just a theoretical theological-only discussion. Paul took along Titus. Titus was a convert to the Christian faith who had become Paul's colleague. And the presence of Titus takes this whole discussion from the theoretical into the very concrete and practical. Because what we have, what we, we have, is a living gospel from a living God which comes to living people. It did back then and it does now. And so we have to get this right. We need to get the gospel right. We need to get the gospel right for the sake of gospel truth and for the sake of church unity. And that's also the, thing, the, the theme that we'll focus on this morning. Getting the gospel right. So in his former life, Paul was a persecutor of Christians. That's even still reflected in our first reading from Acts 11. It refers to those who were spread because of the persecution uh, that came from the stoning of Stephen. And Paul had a hand in that. And then ironically, later on in the passage, he's actually preaching that same gospel to people who, who had uh, been dispersed because of this persecution. 
So we saw last time that he was miraculously converted on the road to Damascus, but he didn't go to Jerusalem to meet any of the apostles until three years later. When he did, he only met Peter and James. And the point we saw last time was that the gospel that he preached was not man's gospel. It did not depend on man for legitimization. It was not devised by man. And then um, he did go back later on for a longer visit. So verse 1 of our text says, After 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now there's been some debate as to where does this fit in the narrative of Acts. You know, we read two passages this morning, Acts 11 and Acts 15. Those describe two visits to Jerusalem, and the question is which of these two visits is the one that he's describing here? And it's, it's actually important. Um, the answer to that is not inconsequential for, for reasons which we'll soon see. The majority of scholars would say that that visit described in, uh, in Galatians 2 is the same visit described in Acts 15. And it seemed to be quite similar. But here's the problem. Um, if this theory is correct, it means that, that Paul did not account in in um, Galatians 1 for this visit that's recorded in Acts 11. You get a sense from this previous chapter in Galatians that he's being very careful about the details of his timeline. And his whole argument, in a sense, depended on that, on his, on his, um, on his you know, getting the facts right. And, and a visit like this was not a small thing. It's not a small thing to, to travel by foot from Antioch all the way to Jerusalem. It's not something you would leave out of your story. And the meeting in Acts 15 actually doesn't have that many parallels with Galatians 2. In Acts 15, verse 2, they're sent. In Galatians 2, verse 2, he says he went up because of a revelation. Acts 15 refers to a public meeting. In Galatians 2, verse 2, he says clearly that his meeting was private. But the most important piece of evidence is that he never refers to the decision that was made in Acts 15 anywhere in his letter to the Galatians. He could have easily put an end to the influence that, that these troublemakers had if he would have just referred back to that decision because their, their whole argument was an argument from authority. It would have been tremendously useful for him to, to be able to point back to this decision made in Acts 15 and to say, look, this is what they decided. But he doesn't do that anywhere. So clearly the meeting he describes here in Galatians 2 took place during his visit to Jerusalem that he described in Acts 11. There's actually a really nice chart if, if you have the ESV study Bible um, here or at home. There's a very nice chart on page 2247 that lays out a real nice chronology and it fits with what we're describing here. The next page is also really helpful there. Good resource in, in case you have it or or want to get it. Um, Acts 11 tells us that the church in Antioch already had a blend of Jews and Greeks in it. So it's perfectly reasonable that he would encounter these problems more than once. So the timeline is he was in Antioch. He went up to Jerusalem to discuss this issue with the apostles. Then he wrote the letter to the Galatians. And then we get the meeting again. He goes up to Jerusalem again for the meeting described in Acts 15. Now, you, you might wonder um, who cares one way or the other, but again, it's about getting the details right. And once you understand this, then you also see the size of the problem that he was dealing with. 
The problem he describes in Galatians 2 was a problem that kept on coming back even after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. There were still people teaching this stuff. He refers back to it several times in his other letters. This was a really big problem. So what was the issue? What was the problem? The issue that kept on coming back was whether or not Gentiles should be circumcised. Why circumcision per se? Because it was the single biggest difference between people who were Jewish and people who were not. And we can well imagine to um, Australians sitting here on this morning in 2022, this whole discussion is completely foreign. But it's not just a question about a physical practice carried out by some people back then. It ties into a much larger, much more important question of what is the gospel about? Is it just an add-on to Judaism or is it something different? And it ties in also to the question, how are you saved? It matters to get the gospel right. Paul says in verse 2 of our text, he says, I went up because of a revelation and I set before them that privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. In other words, he went to meet privately with the apostles to sort out this question. He did that to make sure he wasn't running in vain. What's he saying? He's not saying that he's starting to doubt what he did earlier, what he taught earlier, but he saw this issue is becoming divisive. This is turning into a crisis if we don't deal with this now, then all of the work done previously will be undone and the progress of the gospel will be rolled back. So he makes it personal in verse 3. He says, Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Why is Titus here? Well, he was a Gentile convert to Christianity. He was Paul's co-worker. His name is mentioned 13 times in... in um, the gospel writings in the New Testament. But he, he was Gentile. That means he was Greek. He was not Jewish. He was not circumcised. He's a living example of the kind of person who, who has been affected by this discussion. The question is, is Titus saved by Christ through faith alone or does he need to be circumcised as well? And it was actually a really brilliant move by Paul to take him along because there's two reasons for this. Remember, Acts 11 referred to a famine in Jerusalem. Now we've got a Gentile church in Antioch providing famine relief for the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They're showing solidarity with the Jewish church in Jerusalem. So Paul is forcing the issue in a sense. He's not being controversial, but he's doing this for the sake of the gospel. You know, are, are they going to accept this offering or not? Are they going to accept Titus? Or will they discriminate against him? Will they acknowledge the solidarity between Jews and Gentiles or not? And Paul is saying, saying here, we got the gospel right. Titus was accepted as he was. He was not forced to be circumcised. Remember, the false teachers were saying you need to become a Jew before you become a Christian. And the way they expressed this was through circumcision. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, faith plus works. Now, it's quite possible that you still wonder, how does this constitute faith plus works? I still don't get it. What's the issue? Paul seems to think that if you get circumcised, you're trying to add something to the gospel. But circumcision was so important in the Old Testament. So 
How were people saved in the Old Testament? If it was important back then, and it's not now, does that mean that salvation worked differently for them back then? You know, um, you can make this whole discussion tremendously complicated. A vast quantity of books have been written about the issues surrounding this. But in the end, it's really simple. It's really simple. The simple fact is that the people of God in the Old Testament were saved by faith as well. God's grace always comes first. Think about what happened during the Exodus. Think about the Ten Commandments. It starts with a promise. I am the Lord your God. God promises himself. He, he says, I am the God who delivers you. Now this is what, what I want you to do. So he called the Israelites to be his people. And there was nothing in them that predisposed them to be worthy of that. He repeats that point. He says, I'm the Lord your God. Here's how I want you to live. And then you get the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are a response to God's promise. They're not a condition for God's favor. They're a response to God's promise. It's important to get the gospel right. Also, when you read the Old Testament, many people have a flawed understanding of how these things work. They think that the Israelites living under the Mosaic law were in a covenant of works. You get in by grace, but you stay in by works. But that's never how it was meant to be. If you think about it, the Old Testament uses family language. God says that he is the father of his people. He uses family language to speak about this relationship between God and his people. Think of Hosea 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. He's evoking this whole context of the Ten Commandments here again. He's saying, these people are my children. And a child never does something to earn its place in the family, does it? That's grace. So Paul is not suggesting anywhere that, that Old Testament Judaism was a religion based on merit. But there are many people today, also in evangelical Christianity, who actually do think that that's the case Dispensationalists, for example, have this idea that God's dealings with people are divided into particular time periods, which they call dispensations. Right now we live under the dispensation of grace, they say, and it ends with a rapture, so that's where that whole idea fits in. Then you get the millennium. But they say Moses and um, the people of God back then lived under a dispensation of works. Uh, one of the, the most famous proponents of this view was a fellow called Schofield, and he referred to the covenant at Sinai as a conditional mosaic covenant of works. But that doesn't fit with texts like Hosea 11 verse 1. It's always been grace in the Old Testament. So if all this is true, then why is Paul talking in this way? Why is he talking to these people as if they're trying to merit salvation? What is he reacting against? He's reacting against their misunderstanding of the covenant this, this is important. This is key to understanding the whole issue. So if you can't follow everything else, follow this one thing. After the people of God came back from the Babylonian exile, they wanted to make sure they would never go through that experience again. So they became very focused on keeping the law. 
It's true that God did say, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. He says it in Leviticus 18, but that wasn't an invitation to try and merit your own salvation or to get in by grace and to stay in by works. Paul later wrote in Romans 9, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So the whole point of the law was to bring people to a knowledge of their own sins and shortcomings so that they would turn to God in faith, so that they would wait for the coming Messiah to deliver them from their sins. That's how the believers in the Old Testament understood it, the true believers that's how you end up with people like Simeon and Anna, right? They, they see, they meet Christ in the temple as an infant being carried by, by Mary, and, and um, they're happy. They were longing for the Christ. They welcomed his coming. That was how it was supposed to be. But these people who were opposing Paul, these Judaizers, they, they focused purely on, on the, the works part of it. They were saying, if you want to be saved, you have to keep the Old Testament law. And that's what Paul is reacting against. He's not reacting against the Old Testament or against the Old Testament covenant, but against their misunderstanding of it. And that's the single most, most crucial issue in this whole letter. If you understand that, you'll understand the rest of Galatians. So he says in verse 4 that these brothers, these people, actually not brothers but false brothers, these people had slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Why slavery? Because slavery is when you work all the time and there's no end to the work and you never have a result for yourself. And that's what happens if you use a law for a purpose for which it was not intended, then it becomes a slave driver. Not because it's inherently wrong, but because you used it for the wrong end. The purpose of the law was and still is to bring us to Christ. Paul writes in the next chapter of Galatians, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So these false teachers were trying to minimize the work of Christ. They're trying to point people back to the law. They were trying to enslave people in that sense. Now, maybe this whole discussion seems highly technical and unnecessary to you, but the basic question is a very important one. Does anything you do contribute to your standing in God's eyes or not? Can you be saved by anything that you do or not? A lot of people don't care about the answer. They just do their best to live a good life. But that comes out of a misunderstanding of God and His holiness these people don't take God seriously. They don't take sin seriously. Other people are insecure in their personal faith. Or maybe you're one of them. They're not sure if they're saved or not. So they keep the law just to be sure. But in the end, security for everyone can only ever come from faith in Christ and in Christ alone. It can only ever come from faith in Christ and in the sufficiency of his work, completed on our behalf. The true gospel is Christ did it all. And now he calls us to live out of a transformed life. That's why the ethical section, the section on how to live in Galatians, comes last. We'll read a little bit about that this afternoon. 
It comes last in the catechism as well. The order is part of the gospel too. It's not a minor detail. It's fundamental. You have to get it right. There is nothing else that will ever make you more accepted with God than the blood of Christ. Not your works, not your experiences, not your family, not your upbringing. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when it says all, it means all. That includes you. So own it. Say, I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It always remains true. Don't think for one moment that this discussion remains, that this discussion is irrelevant. It, it continues to be relevant today because, in a sense, these issues lie in all of our hearts. It's a very human issue, and to this very day, Roman Catholics believe that you get in by grace and you stay in by works. Now, mind you, these, to be fair to them, these works, they say, are enabled by the Holy Spirit. They use the language of grace. But you stay in by works. Go to the primary sources. Look at this quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is from their catechism. They say, Since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. But moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. That's from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So it's, it's exactly the same issue that uh, Paul was writing against. It just came, came back with a, with a, in a different form. And that's because it's common to all people. On our own, we cannot get the gospel right. Why not? Because it will cost you everything that you think you had. And that's too much for sinners. So now you understand the scope of this issue. And you also understand how, how loaded this comment is that he, he makes in verse 3 about Titus being circumcised. And then he goes on to verse 4, he says, he refers to false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Here we encounter some of the most disjointed writing in this letter. Paul was highly emotional when he dictated this letter. The false brothers here that he refers to were the Judaizers, the, the people who were trying to herd the new Christians under the Old Testament law. But you wonder, why, why does he use this language of secrecy and spying? He doesn't say that they were promoting their views. He, it's actually kind of, um, if he didn't know better, you would almost think that it was odd. It's a little bit over the top. This highly sort of emotive language spying. They slipped in to spy out our freedom. It's a, it's a little, he's almost getting carried away there, is he not? Until you realize what's actually happening here. If you think about it, these false teachers had a lot of nerve. You think about this, even from a purely social perspective, they, they slip into a private conversation to which they had not been invited. They spoke up without being called on. And they demand that Paul, who's been 
who's been an apostle in good standing for at least a decade now, submit to their views. Like you need a lot of nerve actually to, to do that. They were, they were clearly taking on an authority that was not theirs. And this was typical for their behavior. This is not a one-time incident. Later on, Paul wrote a letter to Titus. And he says in Titus 1 verse 10, he says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So this was part of a pattern of insubordinate, bloviating, deceitful, divisive behavior. And the worst of all is that their teachings minimize the work of Christ. As soon as you minimize the work of Christ, as soon as you minimize the scope of his work, you've minimized Christ himself. You've minimized his authority. You've minimized his sovereignty. You've minimized your own sin. Eventually you don't need Christ at all. What is that but outright rebellion? Paul writes about that in Romans 10. He says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So ultimately, this behavior is not just a theological misunderstanding, but a refusal to submit to God on his terms. That's why he calls them false brothers. The, the Galatians were, were true brothers that were misguided, and he refers to them as such as well in chapter 1, but these people were not brothers, these Judaizers. Do you realize what, what that means? If you do not rely on Christ and on Christ alone to be saved, you're not a believer. You cannot be brothers with those who are, if that's how it is. Those are the consequences. That's why it matters so much to get this right. You have to get the gospel right for the sake of gospel truth, and for the sake of gospel unity. That's the other big theme in our text, the theme of church unity. There were a lot of questions about how Jews should relate to Gentiles. You can imagine how difficult it would have been for, for new believers who were constantly confronted with the same question. They have authorities on each side who are telling them opposing viewpoints. That can be really divisive in a congregation. We know about that, don't we? Think about all the churches that were divided over the issue of coronavirus these past two years. You get people on both sides of an issue and even in society as a whole. Some of them had pretty good credentials and they're on opposite sides of an issue arguing against each other. Then all sorts of other issues get dragged into the argument and this made its way into many churches. It caused a lot of disruption. And, and the whole issue wasn't even that important. It was, that was a stupid part of it. It wasn't even a gospel issue. Imagine how much higher the stakes were when the gospel itself was actually at stake as it was here. If, you don't, if Paul doesn't deal with this, there's going to be ongoing discrimination. People on the Jewish side discriminating against Gentiles. Gentiles resentful because they're not being accepted. It has to be resolved, and so Paul went to Jerusalem for the sake of the unity of the church. But maybe you're wondering why he then seems to downplay the role of the apostles. So he's here because of unity, but then he seems to almost distance himself from them. Three times he uses the word seemed. They seemed to be important, verse 2, or they seemed influential, verse 6. They, they seemed influential, 
Verse 9, they seem to be pillars. What's his point? What is he trying to do here? Is he downplaying their, their importance? But if, if he's doing that, then how does this help his argument about unity? In the first chapter, he's trying to say, well, we're actually the same. The same gospel came to both of us separately. We're on the same team. And now he's sort of, it seems like, it seems like he's doing a bit of this. So is, is he walking back now or, or what? Well, it depends on, on whose perspective you're looking from. Paul considered him, these people to be on, on equal footing with him. Right? He thinks that they're on the same team. But he's not disrespecting them by saying that they seem to be important. He's trying to help his readers maintain perspective. Right? These Galatians, they weren't sure about Paul anymore. He's not, he's not saying he's more important than the disciples. He's not suggesting they were less than him. He's saying this whole question of importance is irrelevant. The point is the gospel. We're a part of spreading the gospel, he says, but in the end, it's not about any one of us. It's not about me winning this argument. His motivation was to serve the church. He wanted to get the gospel right for the sake of the gospel truth, for the sake of church unity. A church was already starting to fracture. He wants to hold the pieces together. He wants to avoid further damage at all costs but he wants to go about this carefully. He didn't want to be belligerent about it. He doesn't want to make a big public stink. He wants to privately go and discuss these issues with the known leaders of the church. And we can learn from that. Just as a little sidebar, our churches have experienced divisions on various issues over the course of the last decade or two. Sometimes these divisions have become very public and people in church have gravitated to one side or another over these issues. But this, this passage is showing us that this is not how things are done. That's not the, the pattern that's being shown to us here. They met in private, and the private meeting was a great success. The Jerusalem apostles saw Paul was preaching the same gospel as they were. He was just preaching it to a different audience. He often began in synagogues, but he, he would take it to the Gentiles. And they agreed he should continue in this way. We will subdivide the work of the gospel so it will spread across the world as effectively and as quickly as possible. And so via God's providence, the gospel came to you. If you go far enough back in your family tree, you will find people who are not believers. Someone brought them the gospel for the first time. They heard it, they believed, and the gospel was passed on through the generations to you. And you heard it again this morning. And by God's grace, he will pass it on to the generations that follow. So do you care about getting the gospel right? What a question. Of course. How can you not care? Yes, it is difficult sometimes to get a handle on it. Yes, there are parts of it that are technical because of the, the distance so a good study Bible can help. Study with others if you can't motivate yourself. Club is starting up again soon. But don't be a passive consumer. Don't just come along for the ride. Get the gospel right. Get it straight in your head. Don't leave it for other people to figure out. Make it your own. Then you will become more and more drawn into the truth. You will be more and more united to the church. And the gospel will be yours forever. Amen.